0: Father, thank you for the stillness. Thank you for the spaces where we can get away from the cares, distractions, and hear your voice. Ironically, Sunday morning is usually not a good time for that. We have so much going on. If we miss you, it's all pointless. Help us to be awake to your glorious presence in our midst, even now, gracious and powerful. Help us to hear your voice and worship you in the attitude of our hearts and our minds. Thank you for opening the way being your presence through the astounding sacrifice of your son, Jesus Christ, on the cross that has given us free access. Wow. Help us to hear you now. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's get going. I don't know how many of you saw this because it just happened yesterday, so you might have not quite seen this yet, but I saw something that caught my attention in the news yesterday, which was a tiny town in Italy uh, this past week put up a statue to pay tribute to Iron Man for the sacrifice that he made in giving his life and saving humanity in the last Avengers movie. I am not joking. I am dead serious. Now, when I first saw that news item, my first thought was, do they realize it's just a movie? It's not real, (laughs) right? It was a movie. He didn't save anybody. He's not real. But then when I read the um, sculptor's purpose for the sculpture, my attitude changed. Let me read to you why he made this sculpture. He said, I like the Tony Stark character because he's not always right. He's a man with his imperfections, but he uses all of his influence and his power to help others, right? So I wanted to remember this, which is my vision. The reason I chose Iron Man was to send this message to our community. I wanted to remember that even in the wonderful luxury of Forte de Marmi, the importance of our choices and behavior in everyday life, All of us must be heroes. I think he's right about that. We have a choice to make every single day. Now, we're not superheroes, right? I mean, in reality, the superheroes are not protecting the world. We're not depending on superheroes. But don't we depend on unsung heroes who in quiet and private ways, and you can probably think of them in your own minds right now, put their own lives on the line all the time, for the good of those around them, for the good of the, of the greater whole of the community. Think of firefighters. Think of nurses. Think of parents. Think of people taking care of the elderly who can't think of themselves or the handicapped who, who can't do anything for themselves. There's, I could go on and on. There's so many people who depend on the heroic actions of the unsung heroes who have no statues, whose names we don't know, and yet the world depends on those people. They're real heroes, and we need to remember that. And the same holds true in the kingdom of God. We're in a sermon series on the gospel of Mark. So you could turn there if you have your Bible with you. If you're using the the Bible that we have underneath the chairs, it's page number 707. Page number 707 if you're using the Bible under the chairs, Mark chapter 10. And I've entitled my sermon today, Unsung Heroes, because I believe that as followers of Jesus Christ, that's essentially what we've been called to. We've been called to be unsung heroes, people who continually lay down our life for the sake of others because that's what Jesus did for us. And if we're going to be those kind of unsung heroes that bring honor to God and the way we live towards others, we, there are two key paths that we have to walk down. Honestly, we don't want to walk down them, but we have to. And that's what I'm going to talk about this morning. What are those two paths? The first one we're going to find in the first few verses of our passage this morning. So let's go ahead. Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 32. We're going to see the first path to being an unsung hero. They were on their way up to Jerusalem, that being the disciples, with Jesus leading the way. And the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Now again, he took the twelve aside and he told them what was going to happen to him. Listen, we're going up to Jerusalem, he said. And when we get there, the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law, the Jews. They will condemn him to death, and then they'll hand him over to the Gentiles, the Romans, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Now, last week, we saw the story of the rich young ruler. If you were here, you remember, you can just look up above. And in that story, Jesus basically confronted the man, and he said, you have a choice to make. You could choose me and my kingdom, or all that you possess. We've been spending the whole morning in worship, which is a one most purest form of worship, is when we surrender to God, not when we sing songs. Worship's about surrender. And Jesus told the rich young ruler, you got to choose. Surrender all you have or me, I mean, which, which is t- keep all you have or surrender it all and choose me. What's your choice? Of course, he chose his stuff and not Jesus. And on the heels of that decision, Jesus now turns and he, and he goes to Jerusalem. Now, going to Jerusalem is nothing new for the disciples, nothing new for Jesus. Normally, going to Jerusalem would not be anything special or unusual. They go up to Jerusalem all the time. At least three times a year as a good Jew, Jesus would have gone up since the age of 12 to Jerusalem. Nothing unusual about going there. But this time is different, because this time is the last time, and Jesus knows it. He knows it. Yet it says, right, they were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. He knows it's the last time, yet he takes the lead. And he knows what's going to happen. He takes the lead. By the way, going up to Jerusalem is literally true. If you look at the map of Israel, you'll see the topography. Oh, my pointer's falling apart. Bummer. I'll see if I can keep it together. So here's where Jesus is with the rich young ruler last week. They go up to Jerusalem. Do you see that? That is quite an ascent. And I've driven that. And next year, Israel, um, you know, you'll be able to see this. But this is a steep, steep ascent. It is a rugged ascent on foot. But it's an even more rugged descent for Jesus emotionally and spiritually into death and excruciating suffering and yet he leads the way he leads the way now people can tell that something's different this time on the way to jerusalem In the book of Luke, uh, when it tells the story of Luke 9 and verse 51, it says that Jesus resolutely set his face to Jerusalem. There's a shift in Jesus' attitude. And we're going to see as the chapters go on from here the, 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 the full impact of what he's about to have, the entire wrath of a holy God for the sin of humanity. He knows what he's about to face. It's starting to change him and people can tell around him and they react to it. But two different ways, right? First verse 32, again, it says the disciples reacted with astonishment while those who followed were afraid as Jesus starts heading off to Jerusalem. Why such different reactions? The word for astonished there, some of your translations say amazed. The word essentially means psyched, excited. Why would they be excited while the others are afraid? Well, there's all sorts of ideas. Mark doesn't tell us, so commentators guess. The best guess I read was by a guy named Mark Strauss guy I really like at Bethel Seminary. And one thing that Mark said, his suggestion, I like, he said he thinks that the suburbs are excited because what do they think, as we've been seeing through Mark, the first 10 chapters, what are they expecting is going to happen when Jesus gets to Jerusalem? He's going to be what? enthroned, right? It's celebration time. This is what we've been waiting for. They're psyched. But now the people, though, they're not so psyched. Why not? Well, because they've been watching the conflict, Strauss suggests, between Jesus and the religious leaders. And where's their base? Jerusalem. And he's had a significant conflict with them just recently. And we know the Herodians aren't happy with Jesus either, the Herods and the rulers, the Romans. So they're fearful that conflict is on the, on the horizon. Jesus causes different reactions. But the bottom line is he notices these guys are excited. Now, this is the third time he's explained to them what's going to happen. He's going to suffer, and they're excited. So it's like, okay, guys, let's get you back together again. He takes them aside. Let me just remind you again, this is the third time now he gives them this instruction. Listen, when we go up here, I'm going to be delivered and handed over, condemned, And then he gives details that he hasn't given so far. He gives more details here than he has in the previous two descriptions of his suffering. The additions here are that I'm going to be handed over to the Gentiles. Hadn't said that before. For a Jew, the thought of being in the hands of the Gentiles for judgment is humiliation. It's humiliating. But then he says, I'm going to be mocked, spit upon, flogged. He's never shared that before. And everyone knows what those three things are associated with, and you probably do too, they are associated with crucifixion. I'm going to be crucified. And I'm going to be raised on the third day. And that almost says it almost flippantly, and they almost don't even get that. They, don't, they have no concept. They think the resurrection is going to happen at the end of time when everything's established. They don't even get this idea. It probably sounds like a parable to them that we're not supposed to understand. But the bottom line is Jesus is helping them to see the suffering is going to go through, and yet they totally are missing it. But what blows my mind, and what I want to make sure you, you you catch here, is Jesus knows exactly what's going to happen, and he leads the way. He leads the way. What an example of laying down all that you cherish for the sake of others. I believe what we're seeing here is if we're going to be servants in the kingdom, if we're going to follow Jesus, the first thing we need to do is be willing to vulnerably put all we have on the line, risk it all. My first point this morning is that walking in our kingdom calling requires vulnerability. I told you earlier, there are two paths we've got to walk if we're going to join Jesus in, in being kingdom uh, servants of his and doing what we're called to do in the kingdom. One of them is vul- vulnerability. The other is to wield authority appropriately. I'm going to get to that in a moment. But vulnerability is where we are at this point. Vulnerability means either being vulnerable like a widow and orphan, or it's making yourself vulnerable like Jesus does by, by emptying himself of everything to meet us where we are. That is needed. He has to take that step, or he can't be the Savior and the, sa- oh, and the Messiah. It's key to his kingdom calling. Where I'm getting these two concepts of authority and vulnerability, not only from Jesus' example, but also from this book that I recently read, called Strong and Weak. It's a very short book. doesn't take long to read it all by Andy Crouch. And in this book, he talks about the paradox of true leadership always has a balance between being strong and weak, always has that balance. You need both. It's not be strong or weak. We tend to think of these as opposite traits. No, they need to be carried in balance, and the book goes through this. But his his basis in talking about strong and weak is in order to carry out what God's made us to do, What is the function of humanity? He starts there in the book and it's where the Bible starts. What is the purpose of humanity? It is to bring glory to God. How do we do that? Leroy brought it out this morning in worship. How do we bring glory to God? By showing forth his brilliance. By showing who he is, by imaging him. The early church father, Irenaeus, he summarized what the glory of God is this way. He said the glory of God is a human being fully alive. I love that. A glory of God is a human being fully alive. Why would he say that? Because of all the things that God created, there's only one thing he created that was meant to show forth what he's like. Only one thing created in his image, and you know what it is, it's us. Here are the true, key biblical truths that are absolutely, oh, actually, before we get that, here's how Crouch defines a human being fully alive, and I love his definition. We as human beings are meant to flourish. We were made to flourish not just to survive, we were made to thrive, not just to exist, but to explore and expand, because that's what God does, and we were made in his image, to flourish is to be fully alive, flourishing requires us to embrace both authority and vulnerability, the two paths that Jesus does, both capacity, but frailty, even in this broken world, life and death for the sake of God and his kingdom. That's how he defines this idea of a human being fully alive. And we get it from those biblical truths found in the very first chapter of the Bible, Genesis 1, at the creation of humanity. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. First truth, we're made in the image of God. Image means reflection. We can see who he is through human beings. When they're fully human and fully alive. So then God blessed these humans and then he, these image bearers. And He said, What are they supposed to do with this image? Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth. The fullness of the earth is His. Subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over every living creature that moves on the ground. He wants us to steward this creation for His purposes, to allow it to flourish. That's why, we, if anyone should care of the environment, it should be us believers. It's his creation. He wants us to steward it from the very beginning, book page one. So we're made in his image. We're told to be fruitful, to flourish, and to aid to that flourishing with all that he gives us. Is not for the purpose of bringing it for ourselves. It's to spend it on behalf of others, and this is what the, the rest of the book goes into. And at the two concepts, how we do this out, how do we walk out flourishing and enabling others to flourish, it is the usage of vulnerability, making ourselves open to suffering or experiencing it ourselves, and the use of authority. I'll talk more about that in a moment. So with those two thoughts in mind, let's keep going in the passage, and we want to move on to see how Jesus speaks of authority. Verse 35. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. How many of you like when your kids, if your kids came to you, give me whatever, I'm about to ask you for something and give it to me. Oh, so Jesus is not going to fall for that, right? And he goes, uh, exactly what do you want, right? <laughs> what do you want me to do for you, he asked. Now, why wouldn't I have asked straight out? Well, here's the request, verse 37. Well, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. That's what we want. That's what we want. What are they asking for here? Let one of us sit at your right. Now, what did he just get done teaching them? He's going to Jerusalem to what? Suffer and die. And what's the first thing they bring up? How can we have glory for ourselves? Three times in the Gospel of Mark, this is the third time he has told the disciples about what he's about to go through, and three times the conversation immediately after is, who's the greatest? Who's going to have the throne room? Who's going to have the power? Now, I read that, and I'm ready to, like, go through the employee files, and let's get some new disciples. These guys are just not, they just don't get it. I got the wrong batch here, right? But I love Jesus. That's not what he does. Oh, he's so patient. He's so patient. He knew what they were asking for. He could have said, "Don't, don't ask. Oh, what do you ask of her? S- verbalize it. And they do. Now, let me just say this. To their credit, right? Before we get too hard on these guys, to their credit, at least one thing is good. They really believe Jesus is somehow going to reign. They believe he's the king. Where Can I sit at your right or left? Meaning, we believe you're going to be the king, so that's good. There's faith. That's a good thing. But there's two problems with their belief. Number one is the timing, right? They think it's going to happen now. It's going to be later. So the timing is messed up. The other problem is, what's their main concern? Their own personal ambition, right? What's in it for me? I want to make sure I have the best place. Now, this right and left thing, what's that all about? Well, in the ancient world, I mean, not like, you know, today, in the ancient world, there was a literal throne and a literal chair to the right and a literal chair to the left of every king, the guy to his right was the, was the person who had the most, second most power and authority next to the king. It's a position of massive authority. Think of Joseph in the, you know, the story in Genesis. To the person to the left is the second most powerful person. These are the two people that have power and authority and prestige and glory. That's what they're clearly asking for. Don't, don't miss it. That's what they want. They're after personal Glory, nothing else. Now, here's the irony in the whole thing. When Jesus gets to Jerusalem, there actually is going to be someone to his left and someone to his right. But it's not going to be on thrones, is it? What's it going to be on? Crosses. That's what we're being called to. These guys are totally missing it. And that's what Jesus tells them next. You, verse 38, you don't know what you're asking. You want to be on my left and my right? You don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? We can, they answered. (laughs) Of course, you know. When I wanted this job, right before I got this job, they changed the job. Back in 1998, I got this started here. I applied in 97. Six months into it, they changed the job description and added, restart the youth ministry because it had died. And I was like, you could put, you know, clean the toilets every day, and I would still apply because I wanted to be a pastor so bad, right? And that's sort of what's going on here. You know, um, can you do, drink, drink the cup? Yeah, whatever, whatever you want to put in the I'm, I'm uh, Yes. But what's he alluding to here with the cup? When you, you all are well taught, okay? When you think about Jesus and a cup, what comes to your mind? It should be two images. What comes to your mind? Anybody? What's that? So the cup the Father has given him, which is what? The, the cup of suffering, right? On the Lord's Supper, he's going to take the cup, and it represents his, his blood poured out. In Gethsemane, he's going to say, Lord, take this cup away from me. It's the cup of suffering. That's what he's being called to. He doesn't want this cup, but he's willing to take it, make himself Vulnerable. That's the cup he's referring to. They're thinking of the cup of the king. The king gets the best wine. Yeah, we can drink that. Oh, yeah, yeah. Baptized with the baptism. He's talking about baptizing to death and suffering. They don't know what they're asking for. They say we can. Now, again, before we get too hard on him, look at what Jesus says. Actually, you know what, guys? You will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with. Isn't it interesting? He asked them, can you? He already knew that they would. But he asked them. He wants to draw them out. It's Amazing how he uses questions to draw people's hearts. We should do the same instead of make quick judgments. But anyways, they will drink the cup. As a matter of fact, in church history, James is one of the very first martyrs in church history. Early on in the book of Acts, he's martyred for the faith. He does drink the cup. So to to his credit, even though James isn't getting it here, he does eventually get it. And that's the beauty of Jesus. He doesn't go out and get new disciples. He works with us in our mess, in our imperfection, like Tony Stark. He works with us. John too. John isn't martyred, but John lives into his 90s. But John ends up being exiled on a lonely island by himself for years and years and years. John ends up in tremendous suffering. Both of them end up drinking the cup and baptizing with Jesus' baptism to their credit. But not because only them. Because here's what God promises. I've called you Ron to serve me as my follower. Liz, I've called you to serve me. John, I've called you to serve me. Catherine, I've called you. Alex, I've called you. Marion, I've called you. Josh, I've called you. He's called us to serve him. And it would overwhelm us, except for one promise, Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in you will what? Bring it to completion. He'll perform it. He doesn't give up on us, guys, even when we are missing it completely. We can always turn back, and he's the one who brings it forth. Praise be to God. It doesn't rely on us. And then Jesus says, listen, you're going to go through that, verse 40, but to sit in my right or left, you know, that's not for me to grant. Jesus knows his own place with his Father. Submitted. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. Jesus says, listen, you guys are focused on the future and where you're going to sit in the kingdom. Don't focus on that. Focus on the current job before us, the current task, which is to suffer and be faithful at that. Many of us are worried about, I know as a young man, I was so, my ambitions were big and I was like, when am I going to be recognized? When am I going to be the teacher? When am I going to do this? When am I going to pastor? Don't worry about any of that ambition. Focus on present faithfulness, which means service, sacrificial. Focus on that. And Jesus even knows. And as far as the future glory, it's not even mine to give. It's the Father's. I want you to notice one thing that's really important here. These places, there are places of power and authority in the kingdom. The scripture speaks of it. And they belong to whom? To those whom it has, have been prepared for it. The verb tense there is very interesting. It's It's the perfect tense. What's the perfect tense? The perfect tense. And when you see it, it's usually, it's very intentional in its usage. The perfect is something that started in the past and continues into the future. In other words, it's something already decided. It's a state that can't be changed. That's the perfect. What does that mean? There are people God's already decided who's going to have what authority in the kingdom. He's already decided our places, our, what we call our kingdom calling. I'll be doing a course on that this fall. Kingdom calling. What's your kingdom calling? You were not created randomly. God created each one of you, the ones I listed earlier, and all of us for a specific purpose. These unsung hero purposes he's created you for, whether it's in a small way, like taking care of a disabled child that no one ever knows about your son, your daughter, or whether it's in these big, huge, you know, world-famous ways. It doesn't matter. It all matters. It all brings glory to God. And he's called each one of us to it. And we don't choose that place of service. Notice, we're appointed to it. We need to seek God and let him put us where he wants us. And for too many years, I went chasing after the position I wanted, and discontent is all I experienced. No, no, no. Seek him, and then let him place you where he already knows you should be. All right, well, these guys want to place themselves where they want to be. (laughs) And they're not the only ones who want to place themselves. Verse 41, when the 10 other disciples heard about this, they were, oh, that's fine. Go ahead. Not quite, right? They became indignant with James and John. Now, we saw that word last week. Anyone remember who was indignant last week and why? Anybody? Jesus. Why was he indignant? Because the disciples wouldn't let the little children come to him. And he was indignant at them for for holding them back from receiving kingdom blessings. So Jesus was indignant. Now the disciples are indignant. But are you noticing some difference in their indignancy? I love how one commentator brought it out. Look at this comment from Cole. He said this. Our basic character is shown by those things that provoke our strongest reactions. Think about that. Application moment right here, you guys. As I read the rest of this quote, I want you to think about what did I strongly react to this week. In the last seven days, what did I strongly... All of us reacted strongly at some point to something, I'm sure of it. Our basic character is shown by those things that provoke our strongest reactions, and there's a world of difference between what had stirred the indignation of Jesus and what had stirred the indignation of the ten. What's the difference? What stirred Jesus' indignation? injustice committed to others to children what stirred the disciples indignation their own prideful ambition hey i want that place remember now there's 12 disciples how many places two that doesn't add up does it only two get those places now of the 12 there's three that were given special attention right james john and peter James and John the brothers. Hey, you know what? There's two places. There's three of us. we got to squeeze him out. Let's talk to Jesus now before we get to Jerusalem. And then Peter and the others here. Whoa, 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 whoa. What about him? Their indignation is selfish. And it says a lot about their hearts and where they're at right now. Think about your strong reaction this week. I'm going to be honest. I got really upset at, at playing golf about two weeks ago. And I was saying to the Lord, what is that saying about me, Lord? What's up with that? Just because I'm an excitable guy? No, there's something in there that still finds some identity in how I play golf. That's still self-oriented. I mean, at 55, it's a little silly to be flipping my club. <laughs> I'm not a pro golfer. I shouldn't be hitting the ball well. What do I expect? And some of our reactions, you know, if we're reacting to people the way they maybe cut us off in the traffic instead of me, maybe, maybe that person's on a rush because their, their child is dying. But instead, we strong, right, you're, you're infiltrating on my life. Maybe our strong reaction should be reserved for things like the people suffering in the Bahamas. It says a lot about who we are and what we're about. I'll just leave that between you and the Lord. So at this point, realizing, you know, I gotta huddle these guys together. And <laughs> in honor of the NFL season, verse 42, Jesus calls a huddle. Come on, guys, forget going up to get, get cuddle up here. We got you know, we'll get, we're not running the right play here. What's the right play for a follower of Jesus? And here it is. You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles, sitting on thrones, lorded over them. Their people and their high officials exercise authority over them. But not so with you. Not so. Shouldn't the church shouldn't look like the world. Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Look at he contrasts the Two styles of leadership. And this applies in the church, in business, in home, and anywhere, on a team, in parenting. It applies to everything. There's two ways you can go here. You can look for how you can get ahead here, how you can accumulate power for yourself and use it for yourself, or you can think about how to use it to empower. Over here, what do the worldly people do with power? They use it to overpower. In the kingdom, what do we do with power and authority and resources? We use it to empower. You can either overpower or empower. You think about it, he says, right? He calls them the rulers of the Gentiles. He's talking about the Roman rulers. Before them, the Greeks and the Babylonians. and They lord it over. And the high officials exercise authority over. Over is coming from a prefix that's in front of both of those verbs. The, the prefix is kata. And the, ver- the prefix kata is added to a verb when you want to give the idea of, of. It means either down, against, over. Depends on the context, but it's always used in a in a bad context, in a in an oppressive context. That's what's here in the Greek. So that these are ones who are who are overpowering others for their own aggrandizement. That's how it is in the world. We know that, don't we? Just this week, I saw in the news. I think it was on Friday. Robert Mugabe died. Anyone know who Robert Mugabe is? Well, like one person, two people, maybe five. Robert Mugabe was the dictator of Zimbabwe for 37 years. He died at 95 a few days ago. Now, the interesting thing about Robert Mugabe is this. I read his story on Friday. I was blown away. He was the Nelson Mandela of Zimbabwe for years and years and years. Early in his life... He was willing to even go to prison. He was in prison for 11 years in the 60s and 70s fighting for independence from Britain in what was Rhodesia at the time. And, they were, and, there was, and there was apartheid segregation going on. It was terrible. The minority was oppressing. The majority was awful. And he was one of the freedom fighters. In 1980, they got their freedom, changed the country's name to Zimbabwe, and he was named prime minister. For the first seven years, oh my goodness, he was amazing. He almost single-handedly, he was a teacher and he brought educational reform. And there was educa- the, the, the education level of the nation made huge leaps in those seven years he was prime minister. Unbelievable. Zimbabwe just began to flourish as they invested in the people. By the late 80s, it was called the breadbasket of southern Africa. And it, had, it was seeing flourishing like you've never seen. I mean, just incredible flourishing. Go ahead and read about it. It's amazing, and it was mostly due to Mugabe's leadership. In 1987, he moved from prime minister to president, and the first few years were fine. But then he got remarried to a woman with a lot of ambition, and then he brought along guys in his cabinet with a lot of ambition. I talked to Shannon Lagan this morning, who grew up in Zimbabwe as a missionary child, and she was telling me all about this and how how it's all true. And when he got people around him with the wrong perspectives, and they were telling him, you know what? People are going to take your power. you got to protect yourself. And he went into protect mode. And then if you're against me, well, they might beat me in the election. And all of a sudden, he went 37 years winning every election. But it was all with violence. He said, I got a degree in violence. And he used it to oppress. And he used his power to oppress. And he was in charge for 37 years. And by by the mid-2000s, Zimbabwe's economy was the worst in the, co- in the world. They said at one point that the money in Zimbabwe was worthless like Germany in world War, after World War I. Worthless. The money was worthless. Shannon testified to the truth of that. It went from incredible flourishing when he was serving the people to incredible oppression and depression and poverty when he started serving himself. He died the, just a few days ago. His last birthday party last year he spent $800,000 on his birthday and he, and he held the party in a neighborhood where people are dying from starvation. How could a guy go from willing to give up his, everything he loves for the sake of others, prison for 11 years, power corrupts, doesn't it? How we wield, and it's, it happens subtly. And all of us here living in America, we got a lot of power. We don't think we do, but we do. And we need to think about honestly, let God examine us have I allowed it to get to my head or am I using am I the same humble servant when I had nothing as I am now, or has it gone to my head? All of us need to ask that question me included um You know what? I wasn't in my sermon. I threw that in, actually. So um, I'm getting a little lost here. But anyways, I'll get back on here. Hold on. So (laughs) it was just such a stark example of what I'm talking about here. Oh, yeah. So what does he tell them? He says, listen, you guys need to instead become servants. You need to become slaves of all. And we don't fully comprehend those words in our time. We don't have slavery anymore like we did, at least in America. It does happen around the world more than ever. But when he says, listen, in my my forget asking for thrones, you know what you should be asking for? Can I have the lowest place? Can I have the place of a slave, of a servant? You need to understand in that culture what he was saying, what he was saying in the first century. A slave, a servant, they have no rights. I'm giving up all my rights like like Leroy did this morning. My checkbook is yours, Lord. My, My schedule is yours. My body is yours. Everything I own is yours. That's what a slave, a slave doesn't even do that voluntarily. He's forced into it. She or her, he are forced into it. They're going against. they can't do their will. They're not allowed to do their will. In the first century, when he says you have to be a slave, he's in that, they had no identity. Slaves were like animals. They were treated as property. You could barter slaves. And he's saying, you have, not that I want you to be in bondage again. He's freeing us spiritually, but he's freeing us to serve. He's freeing us to serve. I'm gonna skip ahead actually to the Paul's scriptures, uh, Billy, in my notes. Look what Paul says about this. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. The, the, The death of Christ has set us free from sin and death and selfish living. But the point of the freedom is not so we can now do whatever we want, indulge the flesh. It's to serve one another humbly in love. It's to be your slave, it's to be your servant. It's why I live. This is our calling. And to the Corinthians, he says, well, for we, we do not preach ourselves. Jesus Christ is Lord. We're not on a throne. We're, we're your servants. We're here to serve you at great risk to ourselves if necessary. This idea of being called a slavery is something that's hard for us to get our heads around. But some people in church history have understood it. My church hero is a guy named Nicholas von Zinzendorf. And he was the founder of modern missions. Before Zinzendorf in the 1700s, there was no such thing as foreign missions. First, it was hard to get around the world back then, obviously. But most people thought, well, God's sovereign. If he wants to save someone, he'll do it. He doesn't need me to do it. That was the attitude. And he says, no, the scripture says to go. So we got to go. He led a band of of passionate, about 3,000 passionate followers of the Lamb. And they said, we got to share the Lamb. And they started praying, and for some reason, God, God put some Caribbean islands on their heart. And they decided, we need to go to those Caribbean islands and, and share Christ. But to go there in that time would take forever, and the odds of ever coming back were slim, but they were willing to do it. They left their homes, their families, and they went. They went to the islands in the Caribbean. When they got there, what they found is that the islands for the most part in this 1700 colonial time was almost all just large plantations with a few landowners and a bunch of slaves. So they started sharing with the slaves. Some slaves started coming to Christ. They say, guess what? Christ has set you free. How does the landowner respond to slaves being told, you're meant to be free? Landowners are like, well, that's not a good message. So they went to the missionaries and they said, from now on, you can't preach anymore to the slaves. Now, at that point, the missionaries had two choices. These Moravians could have done two. They could have said, well, you know what? We did our best. We tried, right? We tried. And you've got to give them a lot of credit. I mean, they went an awfully long way. They sacrificed a lot to come here. Good effort, you guys. Way to go. Now, come on home. The other option is what they chose. They sold themselves into slavery. Now uh, we hear this, and it's we're disconnected from it emotionally. But can you just—you got that choice before you. Selling yourself into slavery means you're given up control of your life for the rest of you. You will never go back to Europe. You will never see your family again. And almost all of them died from disease and exposure in that in that hot hot climate. They weren't used to working like animals every day. But in the midst of that sacrifice, many slaves came to faith. And today, most of anything that's going on in the islands goes back to that Moravian mission and the blood that was spilled by those ones who understood what it meant to follow Jesus. Is It's not my will, it's your will. That story is told in this little booklet I've had forever, called to serve by Ray Hu. And in there, who says this about servanthood. And I'll just leave you with this quote as far as this whole idea. A servant, true to his nature, will do things that you couldn't pay him to do. That's very true. Father, would you examine my heart, our heart? Are there things that we just say, no, no, I'm not going to do, no, no. We don't even allow you. You may not ask us, but if we do, would we do it? Lord, would you help us to be true servants? Fully submitted to you like Jesus. Fully vulnerable like he made himself. Using authority appropriately. We pray for this. Help us, Lord, in Jesus' name. What I'm describing in all of this is people used the authority God given them, the resources, the positions. They used them for the sake of others. That's the proper use of authority. That's the second path we have to go down. So the second point this morning is that walking in our kingdom calling requires the proper use of authority, not seeking thrones, seeking towels and basins. That's who God uses. That's how we serve the king. And then he summarizes all this in what is the key verse of the book of Mark. If you want to remember this sermon series... A way to do that is by memorizing this one verse, Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served. Even he who deserves to be served, no, he came to serve, and to give his life. How did he serve? By giving his life as a ransom for many. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. For even the Son of Man himself did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's our calling. That's our Lord. That's who we love. That's who we follow. His service brought me life forever. How did he do it? He did it by, by giving up his life as a ransom for many. Ransom. What's a ransom? A ransom is something you give to buy someone out of bondage, out of slavery. It's to buy something back. Jesus is the ransom. He is, he is the offering in order to, for our sins so that we could be brought back into a relationship with God. That's the gospel. We don't, earn, we, don't, we don't earn our acceptance by God and our sonship or daughtership through our, our own good works. We do it by believing that Christ died on the cross for our sin. He was given as a ransom. He was given to die for, in our place. And if you haven't accepted Christ as your Savior, you're going to face God's wrath that Leroy talked about on your own. Not good. You need a Savior, and Jesus is that Savior. But what I want you to see is that he had to walk both paths. To be our Savior, he had to give his life. He, he, that was, he was willing to use his authority not to save himself, but to give himself. And he made himself vulnerable. He became a ransom for the many, for those who were called to be sons and daughters in the kingdom. We see both things. And, you know, as I meditated on that a little bit this morning, And I was praying on it. I had this picture as I was praying over this section of the message. I was thinking about, can you imagine the angels in heaven when they saw Jesus? Remember that passage where Jesus says, do you not think that that if I wanted to, and when Peter picks up the sword, right, in the garden, he goes, don't you think I could call on legions of angels? Think about that for a minute. When Jesus is suffering excruciating pain, at any moment, he has the authority To end it, call the angels, set up a throne at any time. Sometimes the right use of authority is not using it. Can you imagine the angels watching this and going, the one they've been worshiping for all eternity, they want to go. And Jesus looks up at him and, leave me. Both paths are necessary. And what we see in 45 is the perfect mix of the two. And that's, again, my last point, and really where this whole message is going. If we're going to walk in the calling God has for us, it requires a proper mix of authority and vulnerability. Where I've gotten these two ideas, as I said earlier, is in Andy Crouch's book, Strong and Weak, which is going to be a book we're going to look at in my class on kingdom calling. And, um, and I want to talk about this a little bit. How does he define authority? Because some of you are sitting here saying, well, I don't have authority. I'm not a governor. I'm not a CEO of a big company. I mean, I'm just a regular person. I don't have authority. Oh, yeah, you do. Take a look at his definition of authority. Think of authority this way. The capacity for meaningful action. All of us have some kind of capacity. Whether it's in small ways or big ways, it's still meaningful. When you have authority, what you do, or in Jesus' case, what you do not do, like save yourself, makes a meaningful difference in the world around you. Think of Mugabe. Teachers and nurses have authority in their classroom in the hospital. Meaningful differences based on what they do. Plumbers have authority with pipes, and landscapers have it with plants. Pilots have authority with airplanes. Librarians have it with books. If a pilot doesn't use his authority properly, people die. We have authority, we have influence, all of us in some way, even the person who lives uh, maybe a life that they're not able to do a whole lot physically. Prayer, is anything more powerful than prayer? We all have capacity for meaningful action. We have authority. How do we use them together? I'm running out of time, so unfortunately I'm going to have to go really fast. Take a look at the uh, quadrant that he, he talks about I'll do my best. You probably should just read the book. It's, it's a short book. It doesn't take long to read. But let me try here as best I can. He's got the two axes. Vulnerability. Vulnerability is one of two things. Either you, you, you don't have much. Widows and orphans, they're naturally vulnerable. We understand that. But another type of, high, of vulnerability is when you're willing to identify with those who don't have much. That's also making yourself vulnerable. That's what Jesus does. That's vulnerability. Authority is what I just read—the capacity for action. So there's four. When you combine these two together in leadership, what do they look like? Well, if you have high authority, lots of capacity to act, but not a lot of compassion or a lot, a lot, of, a lot of need, then you're going to be exploiting. This is the person who's just trying to store everything. The Mugabis of the world, the dictators, who are trying to store things. They're afraid of losing anything, and they're always trying to think about how can I aggrandize to myself. this, this This ends up being someone who Jesus has to speak prophetically to. Scary place. Then we've got down here, withdrawing. This is not a lot of capacity to do anything not very powerful, and not much vulnerability. Either you don't have a lot of need, or there's just don't feel much compassion for those who do. And this, this, when that happens, we end up withdrawing. Withdrawing means we're just kind of focused on our own selves, our own lives. We don't want to use, get involved with any of the suffering around us, or we fall into despair. It's apathy. It's you know, it, it, you know, just turn the page and move on from the suffering. It's an unwillingness to get involved for whatever reason. And Jesus has to tell that person, that's not why I called you. Come join me. Then we've got the suffering in quadrant two. High vulnerability. They have nothing. They're exposed. People in the Bahamas right now. And then not a lot of capacity to do anything about their situation. These are the the people who are exploited by the exploiters. They're the poor, the widows, the orphans. They're the people who don't have it, cannot help themselves, and they're suffering. And to them, Jesus comes to them to hold them in his arms and to be with them and minister to them. And finally, where God created humans to live is up here. He's given us great authority. Go and, and, and bear much fruit. And he calls us to have compassion, as he does, even in our need. We've been called to flourish, and we're called to, to, to act in this quadrant because that's where Jesus acts. And we join Jesus in his work when we live in that quadrant. Let's apply this to parenting just as a practical application. Parenting, we'll talk about, instead of vulnerability, we'll call it warmth, being, giving affection and, and affirmation, and then firmness instead of authority, you know, boundaries and, and discipline. When there's high discipline and, and boundaries, but not a lot of affirmation and affection, that's an authoritarian, controlling helicopter parent. Kids have no ability to mature because the parents are all over them. And what ends up happening is kids rebel. Down here, if you have no affection, affirmation, and no boundaries, no no discipline, that's just an absentee parent. That's the worst, uh, um, Crouch says. It's the worst situation. Kids don't even think they matter. It just leads to a sense of despair. Down here. A lot of warmth, a lot of affirmation and affection, but not enough boundaries and discipline. That's indulgent parenting, and that leads to kids who feel entitled. What we want is the combination of the two, where we are, where we are firm with boundaries and discipline, but we also just, just pour in affirmation and affection. That's kind parenting. That's how God parents us. His kindness leads us to repentance. It leads to humility. It leads to a balanced life that, 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 that is a blessing to the world. And this applies in business, this applies in ministry, it applies across the board. This is what God's made us for. This is where he wants us to live. Now, where I took this in the first service, but I'm out of time, so I won't, is I I met a homeless uh, couple on Friday down in Hartford, and when I heard their story, I was like, wow. And I'll just cut to the chase with this. They They weren't on the street because of drugs or because they're lazy. They were on the street because they lost jobs and government assistance ran out, and they had no family and nowhere to turn. They ended up sleeping under a bridge. But then the bottom line is, after running into some unsung heroes, unsung heroes who were willing to tell them about Jesus on the streets, unsung heroes who went on the streets and gave them socks and underwear, literally when they needed them about 10 months ago in the cold, unsung heroes who, who were willing to connect them to the Marshall House, who was able to eventually help them to get back on their feet. And and today, a year later, when I met them, they were down there thanking the various people, the Unsung Heroes, who helped them, because now they're in a home, they have jobs, and they're flourishing again. But it was because ordinary people like you and I, it wasn't big, huge things, it was little things. Giving underwear, we can all do that. Little things. So, Father, as we leave here this morning, there is so much here, my goodness. But the bottom line is, this is not a chastisement. This is an invitation. Lord, you're inviting us into the the wonder and the adventure of being able to help people flourish, which is what we're made for as humans, and ultimately to do so for the glory of God in the name of Jesus. Oh, Lord, it is an amazing invitation. This isn't scary, but it does require vulnerability. It does require risk. It does require surrendering. Would you help us to do that? I pray for each person. Show them if they're living in exploitation. Show them if they're living in withdrawal, apathy. Show them if they're, uh, ah, I shouldn't say them, us, including me, Lord, if we're living in suffering. Show us if we're joining you in flourishing. Guide each one of us, I pray, may we be a church that experiences the flourishing of abundant life in Christ, both Within us and to those we reach out to. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'd like prayer, I'd love to pray with you. There's a lot to process here. Walk in the the knowledge of knowing He's begun a good thing in you. Let Him finish it. Be blessed. If there's